When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Last Week in Brexit is brought to you by Pearson Solicitors and Financial Advisors, helping businesses and families for over 100 years. And... Greater Manchester Chambers of Commerce. Connect, communicate, create. Hello and welcome to Last Week in Brexit, the podcast for Remainers and Brexiteers alike. Join me, Jonathan Beardmore, every week alongside Alex Davis and Christian Spence as we try and guide you through the choppy waters of Brexit. Uh, we're going to talk all things Brexit, including uh, Oliver Robbins uh, leaving the, the Department for Brexit, Open Skies, uh, Lloyd's moving to Berlin, and lastly we, we will speculate on Theresa May's Florence speech. As usual, I'm here with Christian. Hello, Christian. Hello. And also Alex Davis. How are you, mate? Hi, I'm good, thank you. And we have a fourth person with us, Alex, who is uh, interning. Hi, hello. <laughs> <laughs> um, right, let's start with the juiciest part of the news this week. That will be Boris Johnson. What do we understand to be going on here, and why would Boris or the people around him be making such moves? Um, Where do you start in trying to understand Boris Johnson, I think, is the first <laughs> question. Well, he's, he's been very quiet for quite a long time, um, and I think the feeling that he must be having is is that he's been kind of forced out of the conversation a little bit. Um, because for a long time, I think, he's had general disagreements with the way which things might be moving. Um, particularly him and Gove have had disagreements with Philip Hammond, we know, uh, in the past. And it's been it's been kind of a long while since we've heard anything substantial coming from Boris. So, uh, in advance of Theresa May's speech in Florence, which we'll talk about a bit later on, I think this was a bit of an attempt for him to kind of throw a spanner into the works and also try and raise his profile a little bit. Um, because the rumours are that there is still quite a bit of disagreement as to what is going to be said in that speech. I, I know there were apparently people in Whitehall uh, yesterday saying that the final thing hadn't been finalised. Um, and that's not just the, the, the text itself, but the actual policies that will come out of it. Wow. And so Boris uh, pens this, this article, uh, I think it was about 4,500 words, it was in the Telegraph behind a paywall, but he also put it up on his Facebook page so that everyone could read it. <laughs> um, set, setting out essentially his vision for Brexit and what it should be. And in, in all honesty, it was a, a bit of a waste of time and it's all stuff which we've heard before. This, it, it kind of takes the conversation back to what the conversation was like almost six months ago now. Um, you know, the kind, kind of global Britain, uh, all, all this kind of stuff that we've heard before. Uh, but one of the the main kind of time-wasting elements of, of what he wrote was that he reiter reiterated the uh, infamous 350 million a week figure, 
which we had on the side of all Vertley's buses, and this caused... What, he reiterated it? Yeah, it caused a bit of uproar, because... Yeah, Boris wrote in, in his article, essentially, that we would be able to take back control of 350 million a week... Uh, and that he, he said something like it would be nice to see a portion of that be spent on the NHS. So it, it wasn't exactly the same line, and it, it, it seems like he tried to be clever with the way he worded it. Um, but it provoked a response from Sir David Norgrove, who is head of the UK Statistics Authority. Yeah, that's right. I think that's right. Yeah. Um, essentially calling him out for improper use of statistics. Um, <laughs> it's, it's, it's the job of the UK Statistics Authority to call out the government when it uses statistics incorrectly. Um, some people seem to have an issue the fact that he was doing this, uh, you know, suggesting that they're becoming a bit too part- political, but it, it is their job to call out the government. Absolutely. And it's not their job to call out anyone else. I've never yeah. heard of this um, department. Yeah, no, they're, so they're the regulator of national statistics. So they sit over the Office for National yeah. Statistics. They're, yes. the, they're the regulator, essentially, for all of that. Yeah, so I've heard of them. I've never heard of you making a comment on... Because there's so many mm. idiotic statistics used by politicians. Of there are. Yeah, yeah, no, it does happen. And so the fact you don't hear about it is probably a bigger indictment on the UK media than it is on the uh, on the Statistics Authority. No, there are regular, regular letters uh, and posts from people within the Stats Authority uh, saying it is improper to use that, so... And then one of the more recent ones was when people start, Labour started talking about the 20% gender pay gap oh, uh, oh. and the Statistics Authority was straight out saying you cannot use that number, we have told you you cannot use that it number, does not exist. the correct one is just under 9%, it's, neg- it's a negative pay gap if you're under, uh, under 35, yeah. Um, so the, the, they, do, they do their best to do a good job, but yeah, the media yeah. doesn't listen to them unfortunately because Boris is a catchier draw. Yes, so, um, sorry, this... Uh, Go on. Yeah, we saw this letter from from Sir David Norgrove calling out Boris for improper use of statistics. And then Boris sent a letter back to Sir David Norgrove asking him to uh, revoke his comments, essentially. Um, Because of the precise way that Boris worded it, he suggested that we would be taking back control of the 350 million. Yeah, um, yeah, not spending it all. But but it's, it's really still nonsense because... The, the, the whole issue with the 350 million figure when Vote Leave were using it was that it's not true because they didn't take into account the net figure. So they don't take into account what we get back from the EU. So that, so that includes. Yeah. So we might not be paying X amount to use the medicines agency, but we need to pay X amount to set one up. That kind of thing. Well, no, no. It's, 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 it's essentially we have first of all a rebate. Um, okay. And this is this is where 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 Boris' arguments perhaps fall, falls apart a little bit is in that we we have a rebate which I believe is, is about a quarter of what we supposedly send over. Um, but that money never actually leaves our accounts. Um, and then there is all the other stuff which we pay into so, uh, and then we get back in terms of you know um, so, structural funds. Yeah, that's and, it, um, regional development funds, uh, CAP, the Common Agricultural Policy Payments, all of those things flew back into, yeah. into the UK. So, so the initial argument was that you have to take all of those things off before you can quote the figure, um, you know, the amount of money which we would, ha- we would have um, oh. after Brexit. Oh, interesting. Is that figure floating about? I mean, I've, I've never heard. It's about, uh, it's about, heard. about 170 million in uh, in net payments. Yeah, 170 million a week. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah. Uh, so Boris was suggesting that we could take back control of 350 million, and that was his point in his in his rebuttal. But it's again, it's still not quite that clear cut because things like the rebate never actually leave mm. uh, our accounts, and also lots of the other things which we get back are things which we would still have to pay for and would want to continue paying for anyway. 
Yeah. So it, it still isn't really true that we would get back control of 350 million. And the, the wider point around this, it, it, it is a, a bit of an annoying waste of time. It, it feels to me like it's kind of dragged the conversation back to the conversations we were having uh, you know, before and, and just after the referendum. But I, I, it, it's kind of representative of a wider thing that's going on around the Brexit debate and the way that the government is performing is that they still seem to be trying to get away with saying things that they know are incorrect or at least will cause a bit of controversy. Um, and, it, it, yeah, it, in my eyes, it, it's kind of just a bit of a waste of time, this, this whole discussion. Yeah, but I guess it's achieved what Boris wanted, which is about getting him back on the front pages and uh, yeah, well, a, you know, a slight shot across the bow from him against, uh, against Theresa May. Well, this is kind of where I wanted to go next. What does this, what does this tell you about Theresa May and her hold on power within the cabinet? Well, I think the problem is since I mean at least over Brexit. I mean, actually, let's go let's go back a bit first. So Theresa May, of course, was Home Secretary since uh, since 2010 under the coalition government, and again into the beginning of the uh, of the administration from 2015. Um, and actually, she was, she's been credited with being a broadly successful Home Secretary. You know, running she actually she's the first Home Secretary in decades to move voluntarily away from that post and not be sacked. Mm-hmm. Um, the Home Office is a, is a place where ministers go to die. It's you know it, it's known as a, a difficult difficult department to run. Um, she managed to get through that in one piece, um, and that's mostly I think because she took an incredibly centralised attitude to it. She ran the place with a, a you know a rod of iron, um, and that kind of works for the Home Office. So the problem is she's bringing those that kind of experience to bear as PM. Which actually needs a much more open and consultative role. You know, being a good FD is not, are not really the same kind of skills that make you a good CEO. Yeah, they, um, they, they, they always spoke about David Cameron as more of the chairman of the board. Absolutely, and I think you saw that through through the likes of, of Osborne at Treasury, through Gove at Education. You know, the, these ministers were allowed full and free reign over their departments. You know, there was very little centralised control uh, from Number Ten under Cameron. Um, so I think she's trying to operate a kind of control and command model. Uh, which is hard at the best of times. You know, there's not many people tried to do that and pulled it off uh, successfully. Blair probably being the, the most recent who, who really mm. operated that kind of sofa <laughs> government rather than cabinet. Um, but of course, the huge challenge with Brexit is it's perfectly clear that every member of the cabinet has a completely different view on what should happen. Yeah. And bizarrely, despite the kind of long-run concept of uh, of cabinet authority in the sense that cabinet needs to agree a position and if you don't agree on cabinet position within it, you resign. Mm-hmm. Actually, all the secretaries of state are being allowed to voice contra- contrary opinions. Do you, do you so we don't really know what government policy is on this. Do you blame David Cameron slightly for that, for allowing splits in the, in the cabinet prior to the referendum? That's where I see it starting from. It's a good point, actually. I've not thought of it like that. Yeah, if we if we cast our minds back to to the you know, the Cameron's Bloomberg speech, twenty thirteen, mm. I think, uh, when he said, you know, if uh, if the Tories win a majority at the next election, we will offer an in-out referendum on the EU. I think, from his point of view, he was absolutely bloody certain he'd still be in a coalition with the Liberal Democrats in twenty fifteen, which would mean he could revoke his offer without any issue. Um, I guess to both his delight and horror, he then won, um, <laughs> and the referendum came through. Um, and yeah, of course, in that campaigning point, they took the decision that actually ministers can campaign for whatever side they want. The collective responsibility of cabinet, essentially, on that one issue uh, was suspended. I don't think it's officially still suspended, but it certainly feels like it at the moment. Well, I mean, it'd be hard to deny your position having campaigned for one or the other side. I guess. Yeah, absolutely. So, going from the command and control 
aspects of Theresa May, some which I thought was rather unusual this week, and which you pointed out to me before the podcast, is Oliver Robbins has moved to number 10. Now, if you don't know who Oliver Robbins is, I'm going to get Alex to, to explain it to you, and then I think I'm going to ask Christian to say why this is bizarre. Okay. Um, I, I, I don't know a whole lot about the guy. I only learned him this week, but he, is, he, he was in charge of DEXU, the Department for Exiting the European Union, and has been for the past 12 months, I believe. Mm-hmm. Um, but we learned this week that he has left that post after just one year and has joined Theresa May at number 10. Mm. Um, and I think broadly this represents, again, perhaps a bit of a, an attempt at a power grab by Theresa May to take... Uh, some more control over Brexit, the Brexit process and what's what's going on. Yeah. So, how is this going to affect Dexu then, and what's it what's it saying about the job that Dexu is doing? Okay. So, so yeah, as Alex has said he was permanent secretary um, to Dexu, so the chief civil servant oh. essentially for the department that's uh, that's leading the the Brexit process. Um, he has moved to Cabinet Office, which is which is another government department. It's slightly obscure. Not many people know too much about it. Uh, set up in the 1920s, I think, a relatively new department, uh, specifically to kind of provide a, a holistic view over the whole of Whitehall. That's kind of Cabinet Office's right. role. Cabinet Office is joined to Number Ten by a dark and dimly lit corridor and a green baize door. Uh, so it's kind of often seen as the Number Ten department, essentially the one the one government department which oversees all other government policy. Um, so yes, he's been permanent secretary there since the department was founded after Theresa May became Prime Minister last July, uh, and he's moved into into cabinet office. Now, so cabinet office again, so it's kind of the number ten uh, command and control pod. Um, they, there is clearly a, a desire from Theresa May to take greater control over the Brexit process at the moment, and that's, I guess, why we're seeing the speech uh, later this week from her in Florence. Um, there's also kind of a bit more background, I guess, about why this move to Cabinet Office is intriguing. As at firstly, obviously, he's been uh, Oliver Robbins has been there since this process started. He's gained a very popular reputation within the European Commission. There was uh, some comments from the media earlier this week, which highlighted that people within Task Force 50, that part of the European Commission which is handling the negotiations from their side, have said he's one of the few people on the British side that appears to have a genuine grasp of all the facts. Mm. Uh, As we've explored in some previous podcasts, there are, of course, a lot of facts in this debate which the government has not acknowledged and kind of refuses to acknowledge. Uh, So the fact that he may be there um, talking through some of these negotiations, accepting some of the truths which the rest of government doesn't want to accept, may have caused some issue. Uh, So Theresa May's dragged him in. Now, the other one is Cabinet Office was really hoping that it would be the department that would oversee the EU negotiations and the exit from them right back at the beginning. Cabinet Office had, once the referendum result was clear, had started to compile potential government policy papers on how we should attack it, and Cabinet Office was pretty miffed that a new department was set up uh, and had that taken away. Now, historically, Cabinet Office is where you'd expect this to take place, really. The whole point of Cabinet Office is it's a department which transcends all of the other departments. So if you've got a policy that doesn't fit neatly into any of the one departments, it goes to Cabinet Office. And actually, Brexit doesn't fit neatly. It has impacts across 50-odd different policy areas. Mm. Basically, every part of our regulatory system is touched by the EU in some way now. Um, So I think there's also a bit of a grab back from Cabinet Office as well, just to be able to say, you know, we've got the lead guy. Uh, He's the one who knows what's going on. Uh, And certainly, yeah, that that 
you know, trying to put Theresa May in greater control. It's not yet clear, I guess, how much this might emasculate David Davis. Um, yeah, it's, it's been rumoured that one of the things that which might occur on Friday is that Theresa May announces that she wants to have more of a first-hand, uh, first-hand in, in everything that's going on. Mm-hmm. And so it strikes me that if he if he's well-renowned from the Commission's point of view and knows his stuff, that he's been brought in, brought in essentially to make sure that May's as briefed as anyone else's uh, on all this stuff so that she can really get stuck in. I mean, is almost the cat-handed way that this, that, that, that this has been done indicative of the fact that the whole cabinet are in some sort of Mexican standoff? So she can't just say, right, you are going to change the approach to, to Brexit, David Davis. Instead, she's going to have to take personnel, advisors, set up almost a shadow, a shadow department within... Um, within the... Oh, yeah, the Cabinet Office. Yes, the Cabinet Office. Well, I mean, there's been complaints from other government ministers about this already. So there is a Cabinet subcommittee that was set up specifically to look at the Brexit issue um, just after the referendum, or just after Theresa May came to power, rather. Um, and it is through that subcommittee that most of the work on positioning Brexit from government has been done. So there have been complaints from Cabinet ministers that they've not been... There has been no full Cabinet meeting mm. where Cabinet has agreed what government policy should be. Mm-hmm. Um, um, now, strictly speaking, that is against the codes of conduct of government. Mm-hmm. Um, there's some interesting stuff on the uh, on the Guido Fawkes blog of all places um, this week, saying actually the cabinet secretary should be calling Theresa May out in this, saying actually you are not following due process in devising government policy, major government policy, substantive national policy, certainly international policy, should be being consulted and driven through cabinet itself, not through some of the subcommittees. Right, so uh, just to just to fill in the gaps of my uh, on my knowledge, what, what what is the proper process? So proper process is cabinet is the body which is there to make make decisions. So yeah. you know we go back we go back to the to the 18th century and the creation of the role of prime minister for the first time. The prime minister in a in the UK parliamentary system is absolutely not a president. They are first amongst equals. Mm-hmm. They essentially hold no more power than any other cabinet minister. Um, They're first Lord of the Treasury, that's their primary position, that's as part of the title. Uh, But essentially they are a departmental head like any other. They're looking after the cabinet office rather than... rather than any other. So cabinet should sign off and have collective responsibility on substantive UK government policy. Uh, and as, essentially, as we can see through the press, it is perfectly clear that not all of cabinet has agreed a position on what the UK should do with, uh, with its Brexit. How about this? Is this a Conservative problem or is this a Brexit problem? And what I mean by that is, say if you look at the approach taken by Labour, do you think they would have similar problems because of the complexity of Brexit? Yes. Is the, the, the really short answer. I think the point is Brexit has fractured, whether we talked about this right in the very early podcast, Brexit has fractured the country along well, I think along, this is going to be mixing metaphors horribly, along an axis that never used to exist yeah. and through every other possible axis as well. Um, so you know, it transcends left and right. It transcends liberal and conservative. It transcends open market and uh, and more closed market operations. Uh, it transcends working class and upper class. It transcends UK nationals and EU nationals. Everybody has fallen into different positions here. Mm. Um, and I remember in one of the early podcasts, you know, it's perfectly possible to paint the EU as a massive bastion of open trade between borders, of reducing complexities, and doing its best to facilitate free trade and open across the. World, and it's perfectly possible uh, to portray it as a massive cartel system with a big outside wall and it doesn't do anything to facilitate beyond that. All of these things are true in some way. 
Um, and so we've seen multiple different reactions. So, you know, of course, Europe has been a, you know, a, a, a poison chalice for the Conservative Party since the day we joined. Uh, back in 1973, um, the party has, has fought, you know, fought tooth and nail against, against the initial joining. It was completely fractured over the Maastricht of the Single European Act debate in, the, in 1985. It was fractured heavily over the, de- the debates running up into Maastricht, and of course, that, you know, we, you know, the, the Prime Minister then, Margaret Thatcher, lost her job essentially, specifically, over those debates and the Bruges speech in uh, in 1990. It was split over what it wanted to do with Lisbon. It's now split over whether we stay in, if we stay in, if we leave, how we leave. All of those things were for debate, and uh, Labour is in, despite the fact it's getting a relatively easier ride in the press, just because the attention on this is quite correctly on government. The Labour Party is split in as many ways as the Tory Party is on this. I would, I would imagine that if something, if something drastic did happen, uh, if there was an early election or something like that where, where Corbyn suddenly got into power, I imagine there would be an, a serious amount of scrambling on their side. Um, because I, I think they're kind of taking the easy ride at this point um, yeah. and being kind of quiet about the whole thing because... At this point, you know, it, it's all just falling into their lap. Um, yeah, they, they'd be mad to intervene at this yeah, stage yeah, from a political yeah, yeah. point of view. Well, I mean, Corbyn should be prim- uh, prime minister in the next, what, six months, according to him? Uh, he's certainly very keen on the idea. Yes, yeah, so, yeah. um, yeah. um, A few of his backbenchers are less keen, Doesn't has to be really said. Yeah. Wouldn't that be an absolute nightmare? To, like, well, this is a, this is apparently what he said to the uh, owner of the Glastonbury Field. So, real, re, real good, real good substantive source there. Yeah, but I think you're right. I mean, this this is the poison chalice of all poison chalices. You know, I, I just don't see who whoever does know, this and is can ever yeah. come out of it in one piece. I'm going to caveat that with the last three elections. I would say I've been elected. Yeah, the last two elections. I would say have been exactly that, which is you don't want to win this one. So yeah. the Theresa May one, don't want to win it. The one where Cap- uh, the, 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 the Conservative uh, majority one, don't want to win it. And one before that, we've been saying you don't want to win elections for the past ten years. Yeah, I mean, Alex, you said before as well. You know, you don't see the Tory Party can actually now, no matter what happens, it's not possible for it to come out. Looking good. Yeah, because if if it holds by the red lines it's set and the red meat it's thrown to the right wing of its own of its own voters, it will fail the economic tests as it comes through Brexit and will lose on that basis. If it does all the right things economically to secure a nice smooth transition, it will lose all of the right wing of its party back to back to kind of the UKIP mode. So it's yeah, and I think Labour is in that same position. You know, this we've talked before about that divide between its traditional kind of working class voters in northern urban constituencies and um, let's call them the metropolitan liberal urban elite for uh, <laughs> a very long shortcut name. Um, so you know the MPs and the constituencies that they represent are in very different positions here. Then, then kind of lobbing the rise of momentum and the hard left, uh, which is causing all sorts of problems because they see the European Union is important in protecting workers' rights, and they see the EU as a nightmare in developing capitalism and undermining their socialist vision. You know, so. <sighs> right. Okay. Well. <laughs> well. Um, I mean, we are renowned for, for helicopter thinking on this podcast, but you've got some uh, news about airlines. Uh, yes, there was a, a few articles which came out this week um, with representatives from some of the big airline companies, uh, like Ryanair, for example, um, basically saying to the government, what, what on earth are you doing? Because they, they revealed, and I, I think we knew this, but kind of, it's kind of hit the headlines again, <coughs> that 
in order for them to secure their their spots at the airports and their, their contracts at, at airports for the year 2019, they need to have about a year in advance in order to do that, which means that we would need to have uh, replacements or at least some kind of contingency plan for us falling out of the open skies policy in place by March 2018. I mean, this can't actually be a thing, can it? Surely. We couldn't... Yeah. We can't fall out of the open skies. I mean, it just... Yes. Really? I, yeah. Right. It's, so, it's, explain the mechanisms of how this works. then. It's not, it's not a single market issue. It's not a customs union issue. It's two separate. Um, but basically, the EU has sole competence over airline deals and negotiates on behalf of all of its members uh, deals with the rest of the world. Wow. Um, which means that we have essentially by choice uh, chosen to take ourselves out of that. Um, and you know there are people who suggest that we can rely on existing agreements or grandfather agreements or something like that but th- there really aren't any. We don't have any agreements with the rest of the world. It's all done through the EU. Um, and I, I believe that there's no way we can legislate uh, to force the EU to recognise us as a, what's the correct term? I've, I've got it down here in front of me somewhere. Um, uh, there, there, is a, there is a term, a recognised status essentially, which the EU gives us in order to allow uh, airline companies to set us as a destination. Command and to, to put, air carrier? Uh, oh, sorry, uh, community, community air carrier. Air carrier. Yes, yeah, that's sorry. right. That's yeah. what allows airlines to uh, set us as a destination in order to get their flight plans over to uh, air traffic control and things like that. And without us having that status, there is nothing that the airlines themselves can do, uh, basically, in order to get their planes off the ground. Um, but I mean, <laughs> so are we? Are we actually saying there is a chance? That the whole air fleet of the UK could be grounded. It's, it's all flights leaving here and coming to here. Yeah, would be affected by this. Affected. What would that mean? It, it, it means that the, the the processes would not be there to allow them to set us as a destination. Yeah, and this is. I mean, this goes. Actually, we can wind this kind of back to a higher level before we perhaps plow into a bit more detail on that. I, I, don't, I don't know any more details. Yeah, yeah. I, I'll, I'll talk. I'll talk a little bit more about <laughs> oh, yeah. about the US EU Open Skies deal. Um, but this goes back to why we've always maintained that when Theresa May stood up in a Lancaster House speech and said no deal is better than bad deal, this is one of those reasons. Because you know the politicians have become focused on we can walk away from the EU because um, we can trade on World Trade Organization rules between the UK and the EU and everything will be fine because tariffs are relatively small. That bit is true, tariffs are relatively small. But we've always said again, podcast after podcast, Tariffs are important. Non-tariff deals are even more important. And the EU has about 750 bilateral or multilateral treaties between its existing member states and countries around the world which do those sort of facilitations. But as part of integrating into the single market and the EU's growth in competence, particularly with the consolidation of the treaties under Lisbon in 2006, the EU also now manages a lot of things on our behalf. So, open skies, the, open, the big open skies agreement of the EU itself, bilateral open skies agreements, particularly the one between the EU and the US, uh, nuclear materials uh, transportation rights, nuclear, uh, nuclear accreditation and safety rights, 
as well as airlines, not only do they manage um, the the airspace itself and the competitive rules on which airlines may land in territories not of the owning airline, they also, of course, do all of our safety accreditation. So the UK does not have a body which is internationally recognised and is legally capable of certifying whether airplanes are allowed to fly or not. Now, extend this over 70, 80, 200 more areas. That is the stuff that no deal loses. Right. It's not just about the tariffs. But, I mean, presumably this falls, in, uh, falls under the whole transitional deal stuff. I mean, it would be weird if this didn't. It, it does, but the question then is about how feasible it is to get all of this stuff sorted out. Essentially, yeah. that's always been our fear. So, I mean, the, the good example is the, the Open Skies Agreement is... And the other thing as well, actually, just to add to this before I go in... It's a great highlight of when we hear politicians talking about the world as they remember it, that actually often the world as they kind of the world that we've now got used to is incredibly different mm. from the one we left when we joined the EU back in nineteen seventy three. So airline policy globally is still one of those areas that is unbelievably protective. Yes. So if you talk to anyone under the age of 30 or 40 in the UK now, it's very, very hard to remind them that actually in the 1970s we had a Ministry of Prices. There was a government department specifically dedicated to saying what price things could be sold for in the shops. Yeah? That is how the world used to work. It sounds bonkers now, but that's yep. how it used to work. Airline regulation is still in that world, mostly. Yeah. So, you know, we when the... When we were flying transatlantic between uh, the UK and the US, there would be specific bilateral treaties put in place which allowed UK aircraft to land in the US and US aircraft to land in the UK. Without those treaties, that was not possible. Now, that goes back to national airlines. British Airways was owned by the UK government. Uh, American Airlines was owned by the US government. And you had national flag carriers and they wanted to protect them. So the concept... So people say about what is it about the EU open stuff. Everyone flies around. It's not a problem. And in many ways, you're right. A UK-based airline could negotiate with the EU to fly into the EU. That's nice and straightforward. What the EU open skies did is it allows Ryanair an Irish airline to fly from Britain to a third country. That was hugely innovative. It sounds odd now, but that was hugely innovative at the time. Now, the challenge when the EU-US Open Skies Agreement was, uh, was done, and it was redone most recently in 2008, was they were looking for those kind of competitive advantages. How does the EU, that's broken down that airline internal market already, start to try and open that up to the US? And actually, the US pushed back hugely, and actually, the EU is still hugely annoyed at the imbalance of the agreement. Because what that currently means is, whilst American airlines can fly into any member state in the EU and then fly immediately into another member state of the EU, so you could have a Washington DC, London Heathrow, Frankfurt flight, the reverse is not possible. The US never gave ground and allowed an EU carrier to fly to Washington DC and then do the hop to Chicago. That was never allowed. The, the US simply refused to back down and allow that level of competition in its own internal market for US airlines. Um, and that then sort of scales up uh, in terms of the problem. Because I do seem to remember, 
Charles de Gaulle was only available to Air France for the long for the longest time. Yep. And I say longest time, I mean it must be twenty years ago that was all Absolutely. And and the you know, BA fights has to fight enormously to try and get its slots at Heathrow. You know, if you catch your mind back probably fifteen or twenty years when Virgin Atlantic yeah, was desperately right. trying to get slots at Heathrow. And eventually it was the EU that broke that down. They said you've got to open up your airport your airports to competition. Um, all of that stuff that happens now is enshrined in an EU agreement, and the EU has competence over that agreement. So I think the point is that this is kind of unprecedented, what we we're expecting to get out of this is unprecedented, um, in that even kind of grandfathering this legislation through the withdrawal bill will have no effect because we will cease to be members of the EU, yeah. and it only applies to members of the EU. So we, we have no existing agreements which we can ride on the back of. We don't have any agreements that we've negotiated ourselves because we've never had to. Um, so, you know, you could argue that, yes, we could negotiate some kind of access agreement with the EU during the withdrawal period, but the rest of the world will have to wait until we've exited. We'll have to negotiate with them on different terms. Um, you know, and it's, it's one of those things where you have the inclination to go, you know, well, it'll all figure itself out and we'll all get around it. But the, the thing that the airlines are saying is that we've basically only got six months to sort this out. Otherwise, they're going to really, really struggle to guarantee that their flights can can land yeah. in, uh, and we see businesses taking action so EasyJet have confirmed in the last month that they are now opening an EU office in Austria they're a UK company of course uh, but they're opening a, a, an EU office in Austria specifically to get around this and I guess the other challenge with the, the American side of this I think we've touched on this before is the Open Skies Agreement uh, by nature because it touches on internal competition law in the United States needs congressional approval so it can't be signed off um, by president or, uh, or representatives, it needs to go through Congress. Congress, of course, is not united at the moment. And I think the other bit that sort of other people with you know, far more expertise in this area than, than I have uh, talked about is when those Open Skies agreements were hacked out uh, early in the 1990s first and then revised um, in 2006, 7, 8, America was looking and desperately trying to position itself and liberalise its economy and open its economy. Um, you know, the first Open Skies Agreement came essentially hot on the on the Reagan Thatcher uh, relationship, and there was a real desire to do that. America is not in an open and liberalised place at the moment. No, America first doesn't lend itself very well to no, exactly. the skies, does it? Um, okay. Now, every week on this podcast, we've got to say something about EFTA. Uh, so let's say something about EFTA. <laughs> Um, yes, and I think what I'd like you to talk about is something we found out, found out this week uh, regarding trade deals. Oh, oh, that was just that was just a little a snippet of information which I came across, which I probably did know, but I'd forgotten. Um, <laughs> uh, which is, which is uh, there's there's been a few articles uh, written this week uh, on places like Brexit Central, um, which is a. Uh, a, blog, a blogging website which, which tends towards the kind of hard Brexit WTO option yeah. way of thinking. Um, there's been a, an article uh, been put up there by Shankar Singham, who works for the Legatum Institute, and also, uh, I, I can't remember exactly how, but I know he's involved with advising the government on Brexit policy. Well, Legatum um, is very close to the Conservative yes, Party yeah, on yeah. all of this. Uh, yeah. the, the government takes a lot of advice from Legatum. Um, and yeah, th- there was an article, uh, there's been articles written by him, uh, a few other people as well, um, in, in a similar vein, basically suggesting that we should write off uh, the Norway uh, option or the, or the Swiss option, mm-hmm. essentially because they are incompatible with global Britain, you know, whatever that, whatever that means. Um, and th- they seem to suggest that membership of the single market and going out there and doing our own free, free trade deals are mutually exclusive when it's, it's absolutely untrue. 
Um, and the best example of this is uh, an EFTA country like Iceland. Um, so F- uh, Iceland, as members of EFTA and members of the EEA, are members of the single market and so can still take advantage of all the EU's free trade uh, agreements, so all the ones which we are currently party to. But EFTA also negotiates on behalf of its members um, its, its own free trade deals. I think it's got 28 uh, covering 36 countries, I believe. Mm-hmm. Um so Iceland also gets to take advantage of those, but EFTA also runs a kind of two-track free trade um, free trade agreement system, so that uh, individual members of EFTA can also strike their own deals too. So Iceland, for example, have recently become party to a trade deal with India, which was negotiated by EFTA on behalf of all EFTA members. And Iceland have also just signed their own individual free t- free, t- free trade deal with China. Um, so it's 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 basically just um, a representative of, of why this argument that uh, continued membership of the single market is is incompatible with global Britain is is just complete nonsense, really. <laughs> uh, well, just moving on from that, um, more sing- uh, uh, more trade talk news. EU want to or have open talks with New Zealand and Australia yeah they they want they want to and, uh, and you know New Zealand and Australia not surprisingly have uh, have become quite excited by that also the EU is the world's largest trade block mm. um, why wouldn't you be excited yeah this comes on the back of the state of the European Union address which is every bit as exciting as it sounds um, Jean-Claude Juncker delivered this uh, it's either late last week or early this week now I can't remember at the European Parliament um, a, a, a hugely kind of positive speech I mean, kind of not surprisingly, you expect the EU. The EU has had its challenges yeah. over the last uh, over the last few years. Of course, on the back of the financial crisis, um, we hear about we don't hear about this anymore in the UK press. But actually, Southern Europe is still in is still in horrendous economic and political difficulty. Spain is is recovering well now, uh, but it's got a long way to go. Unemployment's mm. still about twenty percent. Uh, Italy's economy is now smaller than it was in 1997 um, and the Greek, Greek economy of course is about a third smaller than it was uh, at the time of the recession. Uh, if you're an under 25 year old male in, uh, in Greece then your chance of being unemployed is still about 70%. Overall, so there's lots of problems, and it's trying to work through all that, and the banking crisis, and all that stuff. So it's a very positive speech we've seen from Juncker, desperate trying to say things are better. I quote a bit here: "The wind is back in Europe's sails, but we will go nowhere unless we catch it. We need to chart the direction for the future, which is now time to build a more united, stronger, and more democratic Europe for 2025." Who can't disagree with positive statements like that? But yeah, he says partners across the globe have started lining up at our door to conclude trade agreements with us. Today, we are proposing to open trade negotiations with Australia and New Zealand. Very good. Now, of course, Australia and New Zealand were two big targets for the UK. Yes. Not surprised, of course, old Commonwealth nations. Um, you know, I think they were very disappointed when we joined the European community back in uh, 1973, because essentially that meant we gave up preferential trade agreements we had with them to go inside the, uh, to go inside the then common market. Um, but quite rightly, they have, it's Australia and New Zealand have essentially turned around and said, well, Great news, but the you know the EU trade deal is now the priority for us, not not the UK one. And in many ways, I don't think that's a surprise. I don't think you yeah. know it's. I wouldn't have expected Australia mm. to do anything else. Is it Choice a- of a sixty million market or a five hundred million market. Um, of, well, four hundred twenty once, four hundred thirty yeah. once we've left. Um, of course, it's obvious. And there's still this challenge, I think, in trade deals, which you know we don't hear government talk about enough is the ability for us to really hammer down any kind of trade deal with a third country until it is clear what our relationship with the EU is going to be 
is going to be almost impossible. Yeah, I think that there's a, a bigger point to be made here around the kind of rhetoric which we're hearing about trade deals. In that, uh, Theresa May was over in Canada talking to Justin Trudeau this week. Absolutely. Well, of course, CETA comes into operation as we record. We're recording on Wednesday now. Tomorrow, um, yeah. CETA comes into operation. And yeah. um, it was kind of something was reiterated, which I think we first found out when May went to Japan a few weeks ago. Um, they, they say essentially that what they want to do is use CETA as a basis for a new Canada-UK I saw deal. That. Uh, but didn't he add on the end of it, details are still to be discussed? Yeah, well, well, I mean... There was a heavy caveat in the yeah. very last sentence. I mean, yeah. there's, there's loads of issues with that. I mean, CETA doesn't include services. Um, took nine years or something like that to negotiate. Um, well, but the, the, the point here is that the, the, the strategy seems to be that we're going to go around to all the countries where the EU already has a free trade deal and we're going to try and grandfather that free trade deal just to apply to us and that country. But it kind of just seems like a big waste of time because by staying in the single market we would already have access to all those free trade deals anyway and we wouldn't have to do any of the negotiating ourselves. And then tying that into the whole kind of global Britain thing, if, if what you are interested in is new free trade deals with the rest of the world... Absolutely, the best way to do that is to remain a member of the EEA and become a member of EFTA because then you have all of the EU's existing free trade deals, all of EFTA's existing free trade deals, and then we can go and do our own anyway, which would supersede the, e- the EU or EFTA ones if we can negotiate better terms. So, just challenge that. I, the EFTA one sounds pretty good. Yeah. Remaining part, oh, sorry, you're not saying remain, uh, remain part of the EU, are you? You're saying remain part of this the single market. Yeah. Single, yes, yeah. Yeah, that, that, that does t- tend to stack up. So, so my, I think there's an argument here. If you, if you want to come at it from a hard, hard Brexit point, there is an argument to be made against that, but I don't think it's the, the kind of global Britain free trade agreement. Mm. I think, and it's, it's one which tends to be missed by so many people, is that we can't continue to have you know, frictionless, easy trade with the EU and have really close ties, ties with them um, if we also want to diverge our own regulations and standards. Those two things are completely incompatible. So the, the decision becomes, do we want to ride on the back of all these existing free trade agreements which we, we can already take advantage of um, without having to go out and negotiate them ourselves? Um, we can only do that if we continue to be aligned in some way with, with the EU and its regulations. If we want to diverge, we basically lose the possibility of riding on the back of all those existing agreements and they will all have to be renegotiated based on the, the, new, the new regulations which we put in place. Um, the two things are kind of incompatible and... The only way really to square it is to decide whether you want to do these things in the short or the long term. Um, and this, this comes back to the whole transition arrangement thing and whether, you know, do we just get ourselves out on a technicality uh, out of the European Union what's keeping everything else, um, you know, uh, the st- keeping the status quo and then decide to kind of diverge over a longer time scale. Whereas if we want to do both those things uh, Immediately, it's essentially impossible. We can't we can't diverge in the short term and also continue to take advantage of these existing uh, free trade agreements. So I, th- I think there's an argument there. I just don't think that anyone's putting it putting it across quite quite correctly. If that makes sense. Yes, it does. And it's an interesting <laughs> point. I'm just, I'm, so that, 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 that's, that got quite complicated there. <laughs> but I'm sure it's going to uh, I'm sure it's going to rumble on and on. Um, last last bit of business for the day then. Um, is it later this week? Is it Friday? Friday. That we're expecting a speech? Yeah, Friday. absolutely. This, this was trailed by, by Juncker, I think, actually, um, a couple of weeks ago. I think we, we mentioned it in our last podcast. It was Guy Oh, that's it, yeah. Guy Verhofstadt said... Uh, oh, yes. They were thinking it looked like we might have to delay the next round of negotiations to allow Theresa May to make a speech. 
Um, yeah, I guess I mean the the commentary sort of generally has been pretty pretty bashful against this. Really, um, people are saying you know it's you know all sorts of sort of witticisms. You know, Florence in May sounds terribly lovely, but and, you know May in Florence <laughs> is less exciting. Um, and I think there's kind of a bit of an arrogance about why on earth is she going to Florence to do this? Mm-hmm. Why is she going to Florence to do this? I, who knows? Why yeah. Florence? No idea. I mean, I think there's, I think there's kind of the, you know, the birth of a, you know, one of the earliest city-states in Europe, which, you know, was at the forefront of global trade in the 14th and 15th century. Um, there are some downsides to doing it, of course. Don't forget, we, um, I think it was, was it Henry II or Henry III, essentially bankrupted Florence by not paying uh, debts back. Um, back in the 14th century so those are officially still owed Um, you could of course draw lots of parallels between uh, the UK going through its Brexit uh, crisis as it works out what it wants to do along with Florence being a once great city founded on great banking institutions which collapsed in a a mire of its own confusion uh, in the late Renaissance but we'll skip over those Um, No, we don't know, I mean this is an address that should be being made to the European Parliament if it's being made anywhere but Anyway, she's decided to do it. What's in it? We've no idea. I mean, the latest thinking is it's a bit of a bribe, probably. lots of rumours. But as I mentioned earlier, apparently this has still not been signed off. Well, as late as yesterday, it still hadn't been signed off. There'd been no cabinet meeting as to the the text itself or the policies coming out of it. Um, So there's there's obviously a lot of disagreement, and this this takes us back to why Boris has interjected. Because the most heavily rumoured thing is that... Um, initially, it was rumoured that we were going to offer £10 billion a year for three years. Now, now the rumours are that we're going to offer £10 billion a year for two years. Um, so we're going to have a two-year transition period. Um, and, yeah, I think, I think basically this is going to be a peace offering. Um, so it's going to be uh, £10 billion to cover some of our uh, already agreed budget contributions uh, for the period 2014 to 2020, which is the accounting period that the, the EU works on. Um, it, it is just basically going to be a number plucked out of thin air as a peace offering and to say we're going to continue to give you some money now um, you know the rest of our outstanding liabilities and all that kind of stuff will be figured out at a later date but it's, it seems essentially like it's a, an attempt um, to move the negotiations on I, I think um, but it's not quite clear whether we're, we're giving them exactly what they've asked for um, but it's, it, it certainly seems like May's going to offer something to try and push things forward. Now, Christian, you don't think this, this is what we're after, do, do you? I don't. I think that the EU's been, you know, you can call them obstreperous or call them anything you like, but they have been very clear. Um, they're looking for, they're not looking for a cheque. They don't want us to pay any money now. They don't even want us to agree a number now. What they've said is they want to agree a methodology on how we will calculate the UK's outstanding liabilities. Now, some of those are dead straightforward. Our contributions to the budget until the point we leave, that's very, very easy to calculate. Um, there, and there will be money to be rebated back. Obviously, we have you know, thrown money into the pot to create EU assets in terms of buildings, in terms of the European Investment Bank. Shares of that need to be calculated as to what should flow back to us. There's slightly thornier questions about, you could say, that the EU... The UK, sorry, has agreed to commit... To projects which will run over the lifetime of the EU's budget cycle to, to March 2020, which goes beyond our period of membership, but we've made a commitment to those projects. And we've also committed to projects in this budgeting period through to 2020, which will run beyond this budgeting period. So projects which might run through to 2023, 2024. Um, what the EU wants is for us to agree how we calculate what those liabilities are. Mm. Because it knows there will be nets, there will be net off flows to come back to us. So it's yeah. not about settling. So 
Theresa May has been, you know, the, the leaking on this, and apparently there's a cabinet meeting tomorrow on Thursday, which will apparently um, look to try and settle the content of this speech. Um, this is she's sort of it's being sort of badged now as a bit of a peace offering to try and get us into the second stage of negotiations. Um, but the problem is that even if this is seen as acceptable to the EU in terms of money stage, and my gut reaction is it won't. There are two other things which the EU wants dealing with in this first stage. Citizens' rights, which we've made progress on, but we are still not there. Um, and how you handle the Northern Ireland Republic of Ireland border, which, whilst we've submitted a position paper, neither of the options in it are remotely feasible. Yeah, I think, um, I think we've established that it's more likely to find the last number of pi. Yeah, exactly. That isn't going to work. So there's still a lot of work to be done there. So, you know, the European Commission meets in the last week of October uh, to decide whether we can go into the second round of negotiations, which is essentially about future relationship. Um, the next round of negotiations themselves between the UK and Task Force 50 has been pushed back a week. They should have started next week, but I think we'll now start the week after, or should have started this week and we'll now start next week, um, just to allow Theresa May to, to fly to Florence to to talk to people. It all seems a bit odd, because I always wonder, what would be the reaction the other way around if Juncker suddenly decides to to head. roll up to a hotel in London to say, this is how I think things should go. Hotel in Liverpool? Yeah, it's, well that's it, because it's, it's not We're, even Brussels, that's yeah. it, it's... It's all a bit weird, and it's, you know, it strikes me a bit more of that, that command and control from Theresa May stuff. Where this should be happening, if she's insistent on giving a speech, there's no particular need to. Just get on with this stuff in the negotiations. Well, but if you're going to do it, the European Parliament is where it should happen. Or at least in our Parliament. I, well, I guess this, this, this is the intrigue. If there is no reason to give a speech, there must be a reason that we are not aware of. So yeah. a, a, a couple of things we floated last time out was... Um, Ongoing negotiations in, 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 instead of blocks, we were And I think that would be great, and we'd, we, we've mm-hmm. actually, we're calling for that in a statement we're making later this week, which is exactly, oh, exactly. was exactly about actually, you know, we de- why are we devoting four days once every five weeks to this? This is this is kind of a bonkers way of doing things. Um, we could do more with that, and uh, I think the EU will probably be supportive of that as a yeah. as a concept. All right, well. Um, I'll give you a question which you're probably not able to answer just to finish things Every off. week, Jonathan. Yes, every, every week. Every, every week. What is the least likely likely thing that she is going uh, that she's going to say in, in this speech? The least likely. The least likely likely thing that she is going to say. The least likely likely thing. C- correct. So, um, if any of our <laughs> listeners have any idea what Jonathan is actually asking, do get in touch. <laughs> uh, <laughs> answers on a postcode to, uh, uh, to, to postcard to GM Chamber. For instance... Brexit cancelled, that kind of thing. Oh, the least likely, likely thing. No, I mean, I mean, the, some of the early rumours talked about whether she was going to kind of reiterate the, you know, we are prepared to walk away if we don't get the deal. Ooh, yes. Um, it wouldn't surprise me if there's a bit of tone of that in the speech, but I don't think she would. I don't think she would dare go that far. I think it's. I think we're in seriously dangerous territory if we're around that. I suppose we'll probably hear Brexit is Brexit. Um, will no doubt line itself in that speech somewhere. Yeah, I. Um, I wouldn't have thought that we will hear anything about e- the EA or EFTA. Okay. Um, I, I feel like if, if we do go for anything more specific in the speech, it's going to be along the lines of more, more along the lines of Switzerland. Um, 
which I, I don't know. Some people have called it EA Lite. Some people call it EA Plus. But the thing is, I think the challenge with the Switzerland deal, and don't forget, so it's you know Norway's not in the EU, but is in the EA, and EFTA Switzerland is in EFTA, but not in the EA. But it kind of is in the EA, but it's done through two hundred and something yeah. bilateral agreements. What we do know about that is the EU hates it. Yes. It absolutely hates that deal. It wanted the Switzerland to join. Switzerland as a government wanted to join, but it went through a referendum, and the Swiss people said no, um, even to EEA membership. Um, but the EEA, hate, the Europe hates it because it's a really hard thing to manage because you, you are working through loads and loads of different bilateral treaties rather than existing text. Yeah, I, I don't suspect that we'll hear her, you know, nailing the flag to the mast of any particular strategy. I feel like it's going to be a call for some kind of fudge between all of them. Yeah. Uh, it's going to be, again, it's going to be a have our cake and eat it I mean, I think, thing, I, think I would the, imagine. Yeah, the one thing I think to watch for is whether we get a reiteration of the red lines or not. Um, is, is this, does this just yeah. restate the Lancaster House speech? Or does there, is there even the think, slightest concession? Yeah, I think that, that would be a nightmare in, in my eyes. If, if she just comes out and says, you know what, nothing has changed, the 12 areas are exactly the same, red lines remain the same, blah, 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 let's get on with it. I think that, that would be very unproductive. Um, any, kind of, any kind of forceful reiteration of the no deal is better than a bad deal would be massively unhelpful too. Um, so, I, I mean, maybe we'll be pleasantly surprised, I don't know. Uh, I'm going to speculate and say, I think it's going to be something along the lines of a relaunch of Brexit and how it's structured. Uh, simply for the simply relating back to the Oliver Robbins news, but we will see. Yeah. Could be could be a slight restructuring of DECQ personnel. Yeah. It's, it's all possible. It is. Yeah, who knows? We'll know on Friday. Yeah. Um, next week after Theresa May has uh, defected to the EU. That's so, it. Um, that, that would be news. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, what's happening in the Chamber of Commerce this week, gents? Oh, big one. Well, I guess we're gearing up for Alex, uh, our Alex, uh, heading off to hotter and sunnier climbs next week. So while he's doing that, I'll be getting ready and preparing the last bits of our uh, updated economic forecasts. Excellent. So we, we've got those to launch uh, at the end of next week. So that's going to take uh, that's going to be taking a lot of my time. Um, where can we find you two guys on Twitter? Uh, at GMCC underscore Christian will get me. And I'm at GMCC underscore Alex. And if you want to send some um, some comments on uh, some corrected comments on how to produce and navigate your way through a podcast, please send that to at Jay Beardmore. Uh, <laughs> until next week, uh, we will see you then. Goodbye. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. 
Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.